Welcome to Thinking Out Loud, a podcast dedicated to being publicly curious about creativity, commerce, and culture. Hosted by myself, Nikita Walia, a brand builder and strategist with over a decade of experience. Together, we'll explore the many dimensions of modern brand building and how cultural codes evolve to build new models for commerce. Welcome back to Thinking Out Loud. Today's guest is Dr. Darian Sutton Ramsey, a board certified emergency medicine physician currently working in Los Angeles, California. He was born and raised in New York City, where he spent most of his clinical work until July 2020. He's a graduate of NYU School of Medicine and the NYU Stern School of Business. Aside from his clinical practice, Dr. Darian has special interests in public health education, as well as the intersection of racial inequities and healthcare disparities. He started his career with ABC News in 2017 as a med unit intern. Since his time, he has been a regular on-air contributor for Good Morning America, discussing all things health, including COVID-19, chronic illness, diabetes, heart disease, obesity, as well as current events and interpreting new data and research. Dr. Darian is also known as the professor of TikTok Medical School, amassing more than 1 million followers through his educational tutorials centering around disease. I'm so excited to welcome him to the show today. We talked all about public health and science information and misinformation and how they spread online, as well as the dangers of telehealth startups, even if they are solving some very, very important access issues. Hi, Darian. It's so nice to like speak to you. I don't think we've spoken beyond Instagram in like over two years. I know. It's really, really nice to have these conversations, especially given the pandemic. You feel sometimes like you're detached from people, but things like this make me feel closer. I know. It's so nice. So are you still joining us from LA? I am sitting in Los Angeles, California, pretending to be a beach boy right now. But I'm not really doing a good job because I'm just working as hard as I was in New York. But here we are. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, maybe there's like a $20 pseudoscientific smoothie in the mix, but you're very much New York. (laughs) And some moon water. Oh, my God. The moon juice dust or whatever it is. (laughs) It's fascinating. I always treat it like a science that I haven't studied. So I try to come at it with respect because people get really, really offended. Oh, my God. They get so mad about it. I'm so excited to have you here. I feel like we have known each other for so long and through like very different parts of our like personal and professional journeys. And I really love everything that you do and how you share information online. And just to get started, I would love for you to introduce yourself and how you got here to where you are today. My name is Dr. Darian Sutton. I'm an emergency medicine physician, and I work now in Los Angeles, California, but I trained and studied in New York City. I'm from New York. I grew up in Westchester, New York, in a small community called Mount Vernon. And after that, I went to college in upstate New York at Binghamton University, and then subsequently went to medical school at NYU. It feels like it was very quick, but when I'm saying it now, I realize I've been in school my whole life. After I've completed college, then I attended medical school at NYU. And during medical school, I wasn't sure exactly what direction I wanted to go in, in terms of what I wanted to do with my medical degree. And I actually ended up going to business school, which sounds like a wild story, but I joined the NYU Stern School of Business and got my MBA at the same time I was in medical school. So when I graduated, I got a dual degree in MD, MBA, and then I subsequently trained at NYU in emergency medicine and completed the residency. And during my residency, 
I started to get involved in media and how to communicate public health messaging and how to be creative online. And I started this own personal thing that you know about called Bus Stop Medicine, where I would essentially just communicate a diagnosis to my friends while sitting at the bus stop waiting to go home and try to find creative ways to educate people about something that they may not have ever heard about. But I thought it was wonderful because so many people participated. And then I also started interning at ABC News, just learning how everything worked on a formal platform. And that is a part of history. After that, I started to become more and more involved in media and understanding how it plays with public health and how to find value in that. And now I am an on-air contributor at ABC News, and I also am a full-time attending. Oh my goodness, I'm afraid to see your Google Calendar. (laughs) You know, honestly, it's funny because I go by the calendar and I just don't dispute it. Like if it says I need to be somewhere in a certain day, I show up. And people are like, what are you doing? And I'm like, I don't know. The calendar said to go here. (laughs) And I'm just assuming that I have something to do here. (laughs) That's me. I always joke that like if someone wanted to murder me, they would just have to put it on my calendar and I would show (laughs) up. And you know, obviously we know what happens next, but like, that's how they're going to get me. It's true. It's just like how I get to work. People are like, how'd you get here? The 405 or the Pacific Coast Highway? I'm like, I do not know. I followed the blue line on Google Maps and I got here. Oh my God. When did you sort of like know that like you wanted to become a doctor? I know like you're a doctor, your twin brother is a doctor. Like (laughs) it's crazy. So, you know, it's funny. My mom, was a pediatric nurse. She's retired now, but that was my first introduction to medicine and the world of healthcare. She used to bring us to the hospital because it was probably difficult to find a babysitter for twins. Now that I look back, it was like, come to work with mommy, but it was more of likely a necessity. And we would go to the hospital and I found hospitals to just be fascinating. And I think personally, I've wanted to be a doctor ever since I was a little kid. I never had a story of trying to find away. However, I will say it's funny. When I got to medical school, I quickly realized what healthcare looked like and how It wasn't necessarily what you've seen outside of the hospital. I think that's what led me to business school to try to find creative ways to figure out how to fix a system that was broken. But yeah, no, I've always wanted to be a physician. I just didn't know exactly in what capacity. And how did you end up in emergency medicine specifically? That's a funny story because when I first entered the emergency room, my first thought was this place is crazy. Why would anyone want to work in a place like this? You have patients coming in that have no medical history with no information and acute extremists needing assistance and you don't have any variables to figure out what's next. That is so uncomfortable dealing with the undifferentiated person. And then you're constantly trying to communicate between different colleagues and the medical specialties. And I have to say, after that, I then went around the hospital as you do as a medical student and you do all of the different jobs that you need to do. In medical school, they make you go through every service, essentially. An apprentice, the attending, and just for the people listening, an attending is someone who has completed their training as a physician. There's so many different labels of a physician, but an attending is the last round of whatever you want to do. So anyway, you're being an apprentice to all the different attendings of all the different specialties. And then I think I realized the value of the emergency room and I went back after experiencing the hospital. And then I found that it was a comforting place for me. And I have to say that of all the things that I do, the least nervous I am is usually when I'm walking into an ER, which is hilarious. That is kind of hilarious because (laughs) you're on TV and I feel like I would be sweating with that. But you're like, oh my goodness, please watch out. Fourth of July, like don't get hit by a firework. I'm tired. (laughs) 
And I think it's also for me, it was looking for that value in a person or like someone that looked like me, someone that lived like me as a physician. I still rarely see it now. And we see it rarely when we look at the overall numbers of people who are often in their personal lives who are physicians in their professional lives. So I find that to be an interesting dynamic too, is how to navigate this world as an old millennial, but also trying to figure out how to use public health and also understanding how people communicate, because that's the whole essential part of what we're doing, right? Yeah, 100%. I know for you, you kind of finished school and then like graduated into like one of the biggest public health crises we'll see in our lifetime. I know you lived the pandemic in New York and then moved to LA during the surge. Like what was that like? And what was sort of the dichotomy between like being in the ER, seeing what you're seeing and then seeing everything that's being communicated online? I am only just now breaking apart what all of that means to me and how that has affected me, to be most honest with you. When I look back at my experience in the pandemic, I was just thinking the other day, because sometimes I have these like memories that hit me and I realize how ridiculous they are. And I think that's a part of post-traumatic stress. Like you go through it, you feel it, you experience it. Maybe it doesn't feel like much to you in the moment. And then you realize how much it's affected you later on when you're doing something other than that completely unrelated. And I remember sitting in the middle of an emergency room when I worked in New York. During that time, I was mainly stationed. Stationed, it sounds like a military word, but I was mainly stationed in Queens, New York. That was my primary job. But to make more money as a new attending, I would work in other hospitals related to my hospital. And so that's why I found myself in other parts of New York, basically just trying to figure it out and also experience what it was like to be an attending in different hospital facilities. And I was sitting in a small community hospital in Westchester that was related to my primary hospital. And I remember looking at an x-ray with a bunch of other providers. And we were just sitting there trying to understand it. It was this atypical pneumonia. We called it multifactorial pneumonia, just for those listening. Usually when you get diagnosed with pneumonia, it's localized to one specific part of your lung, and it's relatively simple and easy to see on a chest x-ray. For some patients, they might get an abnormal atypical pneumonia where you see kind of signs of pneumonia everywhere in the lungs. And so that's what we were looking at. We were trying to understand why this young, presumably healthy person had such a dramatic pneumonia. And I remember sitting there without a mask, having a conversation. COVID is in the background, but not yet a problem to us in our personal lives. And someone came downstairs, a physician, an infectious disease specialist in full PPE. And if you can imagine what it was first like when you saw someone in full PPE garb or like when we saw it on the news, it looked like, oh, my gosh, where are we stepping into? And we kind of looked at her and we were like, what is going on and why are you scaring everyone? You know, that was kind of our feeling to it. I have to say that I felt the same way. It gives me goosebumps to this day. She looked me dead in the face because we had known each other from working with other patients. And she goes, this is a lot bigger problem than you can ever imagine. I have family right now in China and you don't understand how severe this issue is because it hasn't gotten here yet. And I just want you to realize that this is a problem. And it was just like a moment. It was just silence, you know, and her words struck through to my spine and I still get goosebumps thinking about it. And then she handed me a mask and she said, let's get to work. And that is how I remember me starting to work in this pandemic, because it was almost like night and day within a week. We had tens of patients and then it felt like hundreds of patients and then we were full. And then we tried to separate the emergency room into COVID and non-COVID to try to deal with the regular emergencies, but also this new atypical pneumonia. And then we found out that the patients on the non-COVID side of the ER, those who are suffering from a heart attack, appendicitis, they also happened to have COVID, for example, and they were symptomatic. 
And so then we had to figure out how to juggle all of these issues. It was just honestly, it was an experience that looking back was completely abnormal and I'm trying to normalize, but I'm realizing now that it was not a normal experience. There were moments where we ran out of oxygen. I remember days where we did not have Tylenol. And then I remember specifically where a nurse that was working with me, her partner had gotten infected with COVID-19, was hospitalized upstairs in our ICU. And the hospital had gotten so full to capacity that they weren't allowing even providers to move between departments. So if you were an ER doctor or an ER nurse, you could not go to the other floor. And I remember her asking me as an attending to use my privilege and just to go upstairs and see and say hello. I was like, you know, it's not that big of a deal. I will. I don't work there now, so I can say it. So I was like, okay, I'll just go through, walk through some doors. No one bothered me because I used my privilege as an attending and just said I was checking on a patient. And I remember opening a door to the ICU. Normally, for those who have never been in an ICU, ICUs are usually, although they sound scary, they're usually very neat and organized spaces because those are where the sickest patients of the hospital reside. And usually it's like a one-to-one ratio of nurses to patients. So that means each nurse has their own patient, which explains to you how critical these patients are. And it's a very organized experience. I genuinely like going to the ICU because I'm very neurotic with my organization and the ICU jives with that. Regardless, I walk and open the door to the ICU and patients were lined up from wall to wall. Their beds were touching and it looked like we were in a ward at an outdoor camp at a hospital with little resources. I cannot forget that image of patients lined up, all of whom were on oxygen, some of whom holding iPads. And they were lined up in severity. The ones closest to me were already intubated. They had a tube in their windpipe helping them breathe. The ones in the middle had high flows of oxygen and face masks. And then the ones at the end of the wall had just nasal cannula, which is when we give you that nasal oxygen in your nose. They were all lined up in progression of disease. And as they got worse, essentially, they moved down the line. And you could see those who were awake and alert and understanding what was going on, seeing their fate seeing those across the room who were already intubated with tubes in their windpipes and sedated, and they were terrified. And you could feel that fear, and it makes me feel it today when I look at it. And it was that moment when I said, oh my God, this is the scene that we can't show on the news. We want to protect everyone's privacy, but this is what I have to explain to people how severe this issue is. And I think it's what inspired me to leave that room and do as much work as I could when I was off to educate people about the severity of this disease and how to protect themselves from it. 100%. And I imagine that living through that and going through that every single day and then going home to your partner and like, quote unquote, normal-ish life, you know, (laughs) I think in New York, people were hiding inside and doing what we needed to do to like actually socially distance, at least early on in the pandemic, just like living for the next Cuomo broadcast. Like what was it like seeing what you saw every day and then seeing the way infographics that were spreading, you know, some that were like very panicky and not vetted and then other people just like straight up denying, like how did you feel in that moment? Unexpected. I felt Surprised. Surprised to realize how much of a turn everything took with the messaging and how divisive people became on understanding how serious COVID was. I think at first it was very much like, let's do it. Let's get in. Let's support. There were claps and cheers at 7 p.m. and 7 a.m. at the change of shift. I remember those moments. And then we quickly got into this argument where some places that were not New York, for example, were not experiencing the severity that we were experiencing in New York. And so they may not have realized or could even understand the things that I was seeing. And so I can understand why many people would say, this does not seem real. How did I feel? I felt surprised. I felt surprised to see how 
quickly this went from a science issue to a political one? Yeah, I think over the pandemic, there's been sort of like this explosion of the doctor sort of turned influencer, whether it's someone in public health, whether it's a dermatologist or a surgeon. Like I think like derm talk is such a big thing now. Like you're one of the people that I feel really paved the way in terms of (laughs) communicating public health online. What do you think is the driving force for so many doctors turning into like social media influencers? I think it's a dangerous tightrope that people have to learn how to walk. Personally, I feel like, although I feel like I'm a young voice in the world of medicine and healthcare, I do feel like I'm an elder when talking about social media and how to communicate. Even today, I'm like, I cannot get with Snapchat. Please do not ask me to do anything revolving around Snapchat. That's just not a platform I'll ever understand. Even when reading Twitter, for me, I'm like still trying to get used to reading in a different way because Twitter (laughs) requires you to read upside down sometimes. So for me, I feel like when I am trying to navigate that tightrope of communicating an important message while also being a resource that is valid and not going to, for me, ruin all the work that I've done. I think that I've learned a lot in what to do and what not to do. And I see a lot of people making mistakes because sometimes they jump into this world of communication too early, albeit maybe it's too early because they haven't understood how important this position can be. And then too early because maybe they haven't finished their training and maybe they are like me at that time in their life suffering financially because it's incredibly expensive to go to medical school and be a resident. And then it's really enticing to see these offers from brands who are trying to come in and utilize this space to profit. And I see how quickly people can fall into those traps of wanting to be more known and expand their platform and then saying, well, how bad could it be to represent this company that I haven't really researched and utilize my position as a physician or a future physician to benefit them? You know, I see danger in that personally, but they may not. And so I'm always like watching from a sideline and being like, oh, I don't know if I would have done that. I think too, like in the last few years, especially, I think people have had, I don't know, they've sort of like turned on conventional marketing and now they're looking like, okay, is something like science backed? Like you have Kylie Jenner taking shots of herself, like mixing cosmetics in a lab. You have brands like putting their cosmetic chemists on Instagram live. You know, I think there's like a real need for legitimacy in the wake of skincare Reddit and all of these other forums. Like what is your challenge when it comes to communicating information responsibly, especially in something like COVID where things are changing day over day. Whenever I'm looking at a resource online, I'm always asking myself, like, who is this person? Where do they come from? And why would I trust them with this information? I find that many people are using their platforms to kind of cosplay as a provider or a healthcare provider. And sometimes I see a lot of danger in that because then it discounts the amount of effort and work it requires to be, for example, a board certified physician. And many people may feel as though because they've seen examples of outcomes, for example, like let's say I tell you about a case or you see something online about dermatology, you feel as though you understand it. But then I get really fearful because the point of all of that training, education, and time that we took to be physicians is not just to understand these quick tips, but also to understand the depth of pathology and how diverse populations tolerate medications and how to use those treatments as best by weighing pros and cons of each decision. You know, these are the things that we train as as physicians. And I get really fearful when I see people who may not have spent any time understanding what could go wrong, trying to just benefit off of those two minute tips and tricks. And that's when I get real, real frustrated. Yeah, 100%. And I think too, 
there's such a fine line. I think so many patients have had really negative experiences with doctors and there's a lot of need for self-advocacy, but there is a point where, you know, you're maybe not benefiting yourself by coming at your doctor the way that you're coming at them. I think it's also realizing that a physician or provider is there to help you with options. And your job as a patient and a provider together is to figure out what's best for you. And I always want to remind my students and residents that are working with me, that's our job. It's not to mandate what you need to do next. Of course, if someone is not communicating and unconscious, then I will utilize my tools and understanding to the best of my knowledge to make them feel better. But for the most part, people who are walking into the emergency room with a question, maybe they disagree with me and that's completely okay. My job is to explain to them the options. But sometimes I think people forget that that is the goal. It's supposed to be a group work effort to get to an endpoint and not just someone usurping their power and privilege. 100%. And I think that there are definitely some physicians out there that people have had negative experiences with that are like mandating them where you're like, I'm in pain. And they're like, no, you're not. You're just making it up. That definitely exists. But I do think that like a lot of people need to reframe not only patients, but also providers, the conversation as collaborative, especially when there's this like explosion of health information online in forums like Reddit and just like all of the Instagram posts we see going viral every single day and sort of like the next generation of like medical advertising. Like I think we've moved past the like ask your doctor about into like all of these telehealth startups that are very single issue focused. And some of them have really come under fire recently, like Cerebral, for how irresponsibly they've been prescribing medications. How have you felt seeing these like single issue telehealth startups come up? I know they're solving an accessibility issue, but is there things you worry about when it comes to them? You brought up such excellent points. There is an accessibility issue that these companies are trying to capitalize on. And they're seeing that people are having a difficult time, for example, seeing specialists. So I think that that's the first issue is our healthcare system is deeply broken. And it's really difficult, I think, to try to fix it without changing it all up completely. And I really think that the healthcare system needs to be opened up shaken and reset because we have a system, unfortunately, where people don't have access to the things that they need. Of the 10 or 12 high-income countries, we're the only one that does not supply healthcare to all of our residents. When you look at that and you compare us to other countries, it is mind-blowing that we're sitting here having this conversation in a setting where not everyone can have access to basic healthcare. I think that's the first issue. And then the second thing is what I fear what you talked about is companies taking advantage of this. And so seeing people in need and saying, oh, you think that you might have symptoms of, for example, ADHD. Well, I'm going to make you take a little questionnaire and then you're going to get a solution because we have this uh, society where we want fast results. We're the world of Amazon, where we want to order something and see it at our doorstep the next day. And it's kind of the same way we want our healthcare to be. We want it to be immediate. And I get that as a human. Sometimes when I have a frustrating symptom and I'm like, I just want to talk to a doctor right now. And they're like, here's an appointment. Even for me, they'll be like, here's one in three weeks. And I'm like, that's too short. But that's probably the best amount of time that anyone could ever get. 
I'm asking for an appointment in a hospital that I work at. So I'm sure that there is probably benefits to me in order to get a quick appointment. But I know that that's not the reality for the majority of people. And in my mind, I'm like, it makes sense why people show up to the emergency room with non-emergent complaints, which happens commonly and is happening more and more as more and more people become more separated from access to basic care. So I think that for me, I get really fearful when I see companies capitalize off of that. And I want to always remind people of the dangers of doing that, getting prescriptions without taking a full physical exam or medical visit, getting prescriptions from different sites and not realizing that medications can interact with each other and cause harm. And then also not having a full evaluation or a full diagnosis from someone who is reputable and has been qualified to do so. Those are all things that I fear that I try to remind my friends, family, and everyone that follows the dangers of that. Yeah. And obviously I have some knowledge of healthcare as a consumer, but not as a physician. How is it that these telehealth companies can actually like prescribe medication at the volume that they are prescribing? First off, I have never worked for one of these companies, so I think that they all work in slightly different ways. But I'm sure that they're taking loophole advantages that have been probably given through the pandemic as telehealth has increased in its popularity, as more people are finding that it's solving an accessibility issue, which I think it's beneficial in many ways. I want to say that as well. I think that, for example, telehealth visits with primary care physicians is one of the ways that we can help solve that accessibility issue. I think what happens is, is that people skip over that initial base point and go straight to these companies that may not be able to provide a formal specialist, but I feel like they're providing this facade that they are. In reality, it's just one doctor who's signing a bunch of prescriptions and allowing many patients to have access to it, which is not really a good way of doctoring. So I think that Maybe these companies are using loopholes that might have existed because of the pandemic. Maybe it's really difficult, to be honest with you, to control this market because healthcare usually is a statewide thing. If you're going to practice medicine in California, for example, I needed to get a California license. It's not that medicine has changed, but I needed to be licensed within the state of California to practice. And sometimes with telehealth, I think you can step over those bounds by the definition of telehealth. And I think maybe that's where people are taking advantage of. Yeah. And I think, like we said, there is a really important accessibility issue that these companies are solving, but then also by like productizing it, throwing venture back money at it, you're also causing a lot of harm to patients. What is your advice for patients that may not be able to see a doctor for a long time and are looking at one of these startups to get help? Like how can people be better consumers and vet some of these startups before they give them their health info? I think the first step is understanding what access you have as an individual and what benefits you can reach out for. Many people don't realize that there are often benefits that they have through some form of help, whether it be the fact that they have low income and the state that they're in provides opportunities for public health assistance, whether they have a job and don't realize that their health care insurance coverage this many visits. I think we really have to take a moment and say, what is my access to health care and understand where you can utilize those benefits best for yourself and then preparing to wait. Whenever you're making an appointment, I think it's appropriate to call multiple different providers, making sure they're all within your range of access in terms of benefits and finding out which ones can see you quicker. And then realizing that having the mentality, doing it now so that you can schedule this appointment in the future, it's all about prevention. You want to reduce the chances as much as possible of you needing immediate assistance right now. You know, So plan ahead, figure out your access. Find out what's best for you. Find resources and physicians and providers that are near you. Sometimes it might not be a physician for primary care. For example, it can be a nurse practitioner who can provide you and assist you with basic medical help and also preventative screening exams like mammograms and colonoscopies. And then following up. And then also, if you're finding that you're having a difficult time, 
Call the office that you're curious about attending. Ask if there are any telehealth visits and ask if you can get a referral to a different physician who might be within your group that you might not have found. All of these things I think can benefit, but it's all about planning and being proactive. And it's really difficult because I know for many, including myself, that's not how we were programmed in healthcare. But unfortunately, due to the difficulties with supply and demand, you have to plan ahead. Yeah. And I think sometimes with insurers, like the knowledge is really gatekept on like what your actual benefits are. And, you know, it's all presented in legalese, which, you know, not everybody is able to interpret and access and understand. You're absolutely correct. That information is often gatekept. People are constantly finding out new things that they have benefits about that they never even knew. And I think there's a reason for that. I don't think that companies who are providing services necessarily want to let you know that like this is a service that you should use right now or you have access to, probably because many companies probably benefit if you don't use them. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like if they're covering your expenses to do something, what benefit does it tell them? But I personally think that if you invest in prevention as a company, you're going to receive dividends later on because patients who are healthier will not only be more cost effective for your company, but be more beneficial for you and everyone as a whole. That's also the issue with healthcare too. You know, we're focused and we're often focused on treatment rather than prevention. And we pay dividends on the treatment and the excellent technology and surgery and procedures and instruments. But we don't pay the primary care physicians who are doing the work of keeping everyone's blood pressure controlled, keeping their diabetes within range. And I think that that is where we need to flip the script. I think we need to provide more access to that basic prevention. And do you at all think that that's also a part of medical school, that just the way that there's maybe like such an emphasis on like becoming a specialist and working a couple of days a week. And like, even some of these like dermatology influencers or plastic surgery influencers are like, oh yeah, like out here, like falling, you know, is that also part of it? Like is prevention, like actually that, you know, out of curiosity, like emphasized in medical school? You know, it is, but I have to say when you're in medical school, you're trying to figure out what you're going to do for the rest of your life. And it's very much a daunting decision. And you're trying to weigh the pros of saying, oh, this is the science that I like. This is the patient population that I want to treat. But then people don't talk about it enough. You're also thinking this is the debt I have. (laughs) And how am I going to solve this humongous amount of debt by also living a normal life and doing what I want to do? And I'm sure that if debt was not a part of the equation, we would have more involved in things like primary care. But it becomes really difficult when you're a student trying to look at your options and you see that probably the most beneficial to community in terms of being a public health or primary care specialist are often the least paid. And so I can see why that funnels people into specialties, because you not only want to pay off your debt, but you don't want to live forever having difficulty after you spent that much time in school. And so I think that that's a part of the issue as well, is our compensation for those who are doing the work is not there. And unfortunately... I think that it's going to take some time to fix that. Yeah. I don't think most people understand that people that went to med school are among the most in debt at all. And it makes sense why people make decisions, especially like when you see residents doing campaigns and stuff. A resident physician is someone who's training, who's graduated from medical school and training to be an attending in their specialty. But I think it's the reason why you see people participating in things maybe they shouldn't because of the amount of debt. It's a whole different podcast conversation, but it is... More than people can ever imagine to look at that number. And I think, again, like that is a way in which the system is like failing physicians and de-incentivizing people from doing really, really important public health work. Because I don't think most people go to med school thinking I'm going to make a ton of money. I think most of them have some desire to help people. Why would you put yourself through that? Like, sincerely, the idea of going to medical school gives me hives. (laughs) (laughs) 
it's funny because looking back, I'm like, oh, that was fun. That was a nice experience. And meanwhile, I'm like, I don't know if I'd do that again. <laughs> I mean, you're doing pretty well. I think you figured it out in your own way. Slowly but surely. There's obviously a lot of science and medical information being communicated online now. We're seemingly entering parallel health crises, especially around COVID continuing to exist and all of the misinformation there. And then now sort of monkeypox as it's emerging. Where can people go for reliable information on monkeypox and how it impacts them? Because it's sadly being framed as an issue that impacts LGBTQ populations, is only sexually transmitted. You know, where can people go for responsible information and what should they know right now? For me, I think when I'm dealing with the beginning of an outbreak, the fact that I'm saying that and we're already dealing with a new outbreak, it gives me hives. But for me, when thinking about what to do at the beginning of an outbreak, and right now I'm having conversations with my colleagues who I worked closely with at the beginning of the COVID-19 outbreak to formulate best communication. It's about looking at primary sources and reputable sources, you know, peer-reviewed journals. And it can be relatively easy. And I know sometimes people get really, really scared before they want to read a journal. But I think if you're able to read, I think you should sit down and take the time to just review some basic resources about what is monkeypox, what is the history of smallpox and how it's related to monkeypox. And then also understanding when a pathogen, and that is a bacteria or a virus, is first spreading in a community, it will often spread in self-associating social groups. And that's what we've seen, for example, in things like hepatitis among food workers and meningitis in college students. And recently, polio, for example, in conservative Orthodox communities. We see the spread within the community, and then depending on how well that pathogen can spread to person to person, it can spread to the general population. And so what we're seeing now is what happens when a pathogen first spreads in a queer community and how it's difficult for society to understand that possibility without using their bias and the stigma that has already existed, for example, from gay populations and queer populations and the HIV epidemic. So I think that we're looking at a clash of science and bias and stigma. And I'm trying my best as someone who lives in both worlds, as a gay man, as a physician living in this pandemic and now treating this new outbreak of monkeypox, formulate good resources. So I think it's about looking at the primary source. Whenever someone says something to you, you should ask the question, where did that come from? I just got a text from a cousin That was information about, quote unquote, what is monkeypox, full of information that was completely incorrect. I'm talking about saying that monkeypox is herpes, uh, saying that monkeypox causes paralysis. And then at the bottom, it says BBC News. It's obviously completely a fake photo, but it looks very real. And even someone for me, I'm looking at it and reading it. And I'm like, it's literally using all the symptoms of any pathogen we've just talked about in the past four months and listing it as monkeypox. And I'm realizing now this is how fake news is created. I don't know what stimulates this, but it's shared more commonly than real news because people often want to have that good, quick Cliff Notes edition of what's going on instead of just reading the facts. So I think the best advice that I can give to people is keep asking questions. Where did you get that from? Focus on primary sources and focus on people who you would trust treating your entire healthcare. And I'm not just talking about people who you would trust giving you acupuncture or maybe people who you would trust treating something that was non-medical. Because oftentimes I find that people look to resources that they would not look to for their basic treatment of disease. And so I think focusing on those who have been in the hospital, who have been working in the lab, understand science, and then go from there. But just constantly reading the primary sources is really the main goal. Yeah. I mean, to your point about fake news, especially as someone who spent the bulk of their career working in social media. And I think like 60% of my work 
is still in social. It's really sad how like similar to healthcare, it's not just like one part of the system that's broken. It's Facebook incentivizing the things they have that have made like media organizations incentivize writing headlines a certain way. And I've seen so many people around me who are otherwise like very smart, thoughtful people get so sucked into these gut reactions. And I always have to remind people, like, think about library class when you were a kid and how, you know, they were like, what is this? How does it work? Ask yourself that, like, who is benefiting from me having such a strong reaction to this? What do they want from me? You know, is this real? Go, like, do the things. Like, even a cursory Google, even though, like, I could spend years talking about how even Google's not the most reliable source of information, will show you, like, most of the time that like BBC News is not going to conflate polio, smallpox, monkeypox, and like a bevy of other symptoms. It's true. And you made an important note about like what incentivizes and compels people to share this inaccurate information. And I think it's a part of cognitive dissonance, to be honest with you. And many people who are starting these things want to feel more comfortable with their own decisions. And so, for example, when we had COVID-19 existing and the vaccines coming into play, many people wanted to believe that the vaccine wasn't the choice for them. And even though we saw clear evidence that vaccines substantially reduced the risk of hospitalization and death, I'm talking about multiples of millions of people around the world have been saved in terms of vaccines. When you looked at the trajectory of deaths before vaccines were given and then the amount of deaths after comparatively, they looked at the first year, for example, globally, and they found that vaccines were probably likely associated to more than two million lives being saved. But if you're a person that chose not to get the vaccine and you accepted the increased risk of hospitalization and death for yourself, then oftentimes you want to make that opinion felt by others to make you feel more comfortable. And I think often that is what compels people to create content that is not factual because in a way it makes them feel better. If more people agree with you, then your decision feels less bad. 100%. I think social media has just made people addicted to finding further narrowing bubbles of people that agree with them and you lose them sometimes to a point of like beyond reasoning. I think it's healthy to be skeptical, but you should also hold in the other hand that doctors and, you know, even cosmetic chemists aren't like sitting in a lab somewhere thinking like, I'm going to cook up something to hurt you. (laughs) But I can understand why some populations also feel that way because of the way history has played out. Exactly. 100%. I think that there are reasons, appropriate reasons, why people may be hesitant of science because science hasn't always been used for good. When I got into medical school, they do this thing where they put on your white coat and it's a tradition where they can basically celebrate the entrance of you into the world of medicine. And at the beginning of that, they would talk about all these great things that doctors have done for the history of medicine. And my dad, who is just a character would sit in the back and be like, they forgot key points of history where medicine wasn't used for greatness. They forgot how slaves were experimented on to create the day of modern gynecology. They forgot how poor communities in Puerto Rico were given medications they shouldn't have been given to test out whether or not that would be good for the common population of America, and so on and so forth. You can talk about the Tuskegee experiments and beyond that. But I think that it's really important for us as providers to take a second and realize that history and where this concern comes from, because it kind of gets unearthed often when we have new discussions about new science. And then we can't be surprised that it happens. We have to acknowledge the concerns that people have, realize that there are real things that have happened, many of whom people still have lived through or alive today, and figure out how to communicate what has changed since that time to protect people. That's really what I think is important. Yeah. And it's difficult to think of like anything as an absolute, even science. 
because people that like build technologies and work in science have their own biases. And I think it's important to like go back to the source, as you said, and look at something like, okay, this is a groundbreaking paper, but did they test only on three people? Then like, should I really evaluate that as a source? But I think that being able to sit in this room and have this conversation only comes with having being taught a level of media literacy. And I think in general, like this is all just a big media literacy issue. It's true, 100%. And people also think that for me, I'm operating by myself. I have a whole group of people, medical interns, for example, who are practicing physicians or resident physicians within ABC News. And we're constantly reading studies every single day and creating summaries on them and the pros and the cons and whether or not the study was large enough, for example, what it actually looked at, what are the takeaways from the study that we can communicate to the public. And it takes time. And I think that that is really what we're missing, is that people don't realize that these things take time. Interpreting information takes effort. You can't receive science by just sitting and reading one page. You're going to have to use some more effort to understand what's going on. And that's where we're coming at a point where people don't want to spend that time. And I get it, but it takes time. I mean, I completely get it. But again, like going back to the source, because even in between like someone reading that medical paper and turning it into the summary, there was something in them that made them decide like this piece of information is not as relevant as this. And, you know, I think everyone should apply their own filter or make their own decisions to some degree. It was so incredible to talk to you today. What is next for you? It was so nice to talk to you too. What is next for me? That's a good question. I'm at this point in my life where I'm right now, while we're talking, arranging meetings about monkeypox and how best to understand it, trying to figure out what's best for the community to get. I think what's next for me, unfortunately, is tackling this current outbreak of monkeypox and now this public health emergency of monkeypox. And then I'm trying to figure out creative ways to use this platform that I've built to educate and inspire people. That is my true love, is like teaching about science and being a resource to people that is relatable and gives out information that you can actually consume without any need for help. And so hopefully you'll see me producing, creating, doing something to that effect, because that's where my heart lies. 